One of the things with our Sunday school and our church schedule right now is there's always been sort of this unwritten expectation that possibly the message might end at about 11.30. I kind of like the schedule right now, uh, if you look at the clock. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. been having some messages on Abraham. Uh, this will likely be the last one in a series, unless the Lord lays something else on my heart to share about in Abraham's life, but likely the last one in a series on Abraham. And this is sort of the, you might say, the, the crowning story of Abraham's life. Kind of his faith and his obedience and everything culminates in this story. And keep in mind, as we look through this, and when I say story, some people maybe don't like that term because they're saying, well, are you just saying it's just a story? Well, it's an actual historical fact story that happened. That's when I say the story. That's what I'm talking about. But keep in mind that in this setting today, and, and as we look through this story that happened, that Abraham is some over 100 years old by this time. He's not exactly young. Uh, probably not quite like a hundred-year-old person would be today if you look at how long he actually lived. But he was getting up there. We're not exactly sure how old Isaac was. The different beliefs range from maybe somewhere four or five years old up to 37. And there are some different reasonings for those. I don't think he was 37. Uh, but he was old enough that he carried the wood up the mountain. So he probably wasn't five years old either, because I assume it was quite a pile of wood for a burnt offering. So he was what I would probably think was a young man, somewhere maybe in his late teens or 20s, somewhere in there. And so kind of keep that in mind as we look through this, as we think about this after all of the other stories that we've seen in Abraham's life. I'd like to read the first 14 verses, and then we're going to come back and, and kind of go through it. And there are several different aspects and avenues as we look through this. Now, I'm going to point some of them out as I go along, but keep your eyes out for types and examples of Christ and redemption, and you will see those both in uh, Abraham regarding God the Father. You'll see them in Isaac as some connection with Christ and then the Lamb and so forth in regard to Christ as well. Starting in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 22. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning. And saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood, or split the wood for a burnt offering, <clears throat> excuse me, and went out and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. He took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went, both of them, together. 
And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. They came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. The angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead or in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. First thing we notice here is um, Abraham's, it's a story of faith, it's a story of obedience, and a story of God's provision for redemption. He says here that God did tempt Abraham. And sometimes we see that word tempt and we're thinking, well, does God, did God tempt him to do something wrong, to sin? <clears throat> the word here in the Hebrew would be better translated probably to test. It meant to put on trial, to put someone on trial or to test them. God does not tempt anyone to do evil. The Bible makes that very clear. God does not tempt us to do evil. But when we go through a trial, of which you may be going through one right now, God will use it to test you, to see where you're going to go with that. What's going to happen? How will you react? But Satan will use it, this very same trial, the very same thing going on in your life, he will use it to tempt you to do evil. And I believe that happened here. I cannot imagine that Satan did not tempt Abraham to say, what foolishness is this? The pagans sacrifice their children. That's not, for, that's not for me. That's not the God I serve. I'm not going to do it. I, I'll, I'll resist. But he didn't do that. He was put on the test. And it's interesting that he says in verse 2, Take now thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest. He mentions that there. Take the son whom thou lovest. And I would say if we are not willing to give up what we love the most for God, we are not truly worshiping and serving him. And I thought about that. I, I... So what are the things that you love the most? Would you be willing to give them up to God if he asked for them? And I thought about some things in my own life. I'm like, oh, I'm not sure. Would I give this up? Would I give this up? Would I... What would I hold back if God asked for it? And if you can think of things that you would say, well, you know what, I would not give this up. Or maybe, maybe it's um, something you own. Maybe it's something you do. Maybe it's something you listen to. Maybe it's some place you like to go. Maybe it is a person. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's money, finances, land, whatever it might be. 
If God would ask for that, if he'd say, no, this is not good for you, or this you cannot have, or this may be fine for you, but I want it for myself. Are you willing to give it to me? And if there are things that we say, no, I wouldn't give that, then what does that say about our obedience and our true devotion to God? He pointed out, it's your only son whom thou lovest. God doesn't often ask us to surrender things that don't mean anything to us anyway. What would be the point? I've never felt like God saying, would you please give, give me that stomach ache you're having because I'm sure you want to hang on to it. Give me something that, is, that you hate anyway. No, he asked for the things that we love for our devotion, to test us. Turn with me to Luke. And Jesus brings this out so clearly in, in the book of Luke, chapter 14. And one of the things that's always jumped out to me in this passage here is the fact that Jesus, I believe, understood that he had followers who were really true followers, and he had those that were following for whatever they could get out of it. Because in verse 25 of Luke chapter 14, it says, And there went a great multitudes with him. And you've probably heard me say this before. If it was me, and there were great multitudes following me, I'd probably want to pat them on the back and thank them and encourage them and tell them to go out and find a few more so the multitudes would get even bigger. What did Jesus do? He turned and he said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, and you fill in who else might fit in there for you, Yea, and his own life also, he cannot. He's saying this in a negative sense now. He says, ye cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doeth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And down in verse 33, he says, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. We like to think of the other way around. If you do this, you can be my disciple. And if you do this, you can be my disciple. But he says, if, you don't, if you're not willing to forsake everything. Now, God does not ask every person to forsake everything that he either owns or his entire family or her entire family or all relationships. But he may ask us that we have to, we have to draw the line sometimes between some of those things and say, you know what, I have to give this up. Well, if we go back to Genesis 22 and continue on, I find it interesting that it says in the next verse, And Abraham rose up early in the morning. Now, I suspect he probably wasn't sleeping very well anyway. I don't know if you've ever had things on your mind that you didn't sleep well, and at some point you figure, you know what, I might as well get up, I can't sleep anyway. That may be a little bit where Abraham was at. 
Remember, we had the story about Abraham, and we had the story about Lot, and they had to drag Lot out of Sodom before God would destroy it. Had to drag him out of there. There was no one dragging Abraham out of here to go do what God had told him. He rose up early in the morning. To me, that shows his faith and his trust. I'd like to turn to another New Testament passage. Let's go to Hebrews. And we don't see this in, in, in Genesis. It doesn't bring this out. But God does bring it out in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, that, that passage, it talks about faith. Faith, faith talks a lot about Abraham's faith. And we get to verse 17. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, or when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Now it's interesting, he says he offered him up. It was a matter that he was offering him up. He offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promise, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. So Abraham knew that this was the son of promise that God had said through him. All these things are going to happen. And then in verse 19 he says, Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from whence also he received him in a figure. And that idea of received him in a figure basically means, I understand it, that at this point Abraham considered him as much as dead. He's going to sacrifice him. And God is able to raise him up from the dead, but he's as much, in Abraham's mind, he's as much as sacrificed. So when he was able to go back down the mountain with his son, it's a sense... He considered him brought back from the dead. In his mind, he was dead and he brought him back. Now, he didn't actually kill him. But in Abraham's mind, that's what he was going to do. But he realized that that's probably what was going to happen. But yet he had the faith to believe that God was still going to fulfill his promises and raise him from the dead if necessary. Now, if you notice... These stories about Abraham, the book of Romans points out very clearly that Abraham was justified. That means he was made, he was made right in God's eyes. He was seen as righteous in God's eyes by his faith. He placed his faith in God to the point where he believed that God could raise his son from the dead if that's what it took for his son to be the one through whom all the world would be blessed and these multitudes would come. But there's also a passage that I'd like for us to look at in in the book of James, because James brings out something else about this. And I think we must keep this in mind, that yes, he was justified by faith, but he could have said, he could have sat there by his tent door, and he could have said, Sarah, you wouldn't believe what God's asked me to do. He's asked me to sacrifice my son. And you know what? I'm convinced that if I would, he could raise him from the dead. And since I know he's a son of promise, and I know God could do that, I think I'll just stay here and forget the whole thing because he's a son of promise, and that's it. 
Would that have been faith? Well, not really according to James. James chapter 2, starting at verse 14, it says, What doeth it profit, my brethren? Though a man say he hath faith, have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, this goes along, by the way, with our Sunday school lesson this morning, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which they are needful to the body, what doeth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, and thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Wilt thou know, O vain man, what faith without works, that faith without works is dead? Now notice what he says. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought or was put together with his works, and by works was faith made perfect or complete? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. He was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Now what's interesting, if you look at that verse 23, where it says that Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, that is actually in Genesis chapter 15. You'll see that referenced also in the book of Romans. And that was not part of this particular uh, narrative. It had to do with the fact that when God told him, you're going to have a son, and your son is going to uh, be the father of many nations. And Abraham believed that, and that was imputed to him for righteousness. But James uses it in this story where he offers his son, and James says he was justified. How do you connect those two? I connect it this way because Abraham believed God that he was going to have this son, and through this son... All the world would be blessed, and there would be many nations, and he was willing, even in that setting, to sacrifice him because he believed that what God said back here about his son was going to happen somehow, but he believed him enough that he was willing to give his son if that's what it took, if that's what God asked. Let's look at this story a little bit and just and go through it. Some of you watch movies. Some of you don't. Some of you watch movies you probably shouldn't. Some of you probably don't. I'm not here to talk about movies this morning, but some of you do watch different movies. And I, I want to ask you this question. You think about it a little bit as we go through this, this narrative. If this would be a movie you were watching and you didn't know the outcome, would your heart begin to pound a little bit when Abraham gets closer to the mountain, closer, and when he finally raises the knife to slay his son. If you didn't know the outcome, would you be like, oh, is he going to kill him? Is he really going to kill him? Would you think, boy, I picked the wrong movie to watch tonight. I don't like this kind of thing. We know the outcome. And so as we look through it, we think, well, we know the ending. If you wouldn't know the ending, 
how would it feel? What would you think? So it says that he rose up early in the morning, and he saddled his donkey there, and he took a couple of young men with him, probably woke them up, and maybe even the night before he said, hey, we're going to leave early in the morning. I want you to go with me. Have you helped me carry some things and take some things along? Took Isaac, he chopped this wood and split the wood and tied all this wood up on to the donkey. And off they went. And it would appear from the story that he had not told Sarah what was going on. <clears throat> One of the reasons that some people think, and this I think is some older Jewish tradition, think that he was 37, I believe, is, if I might have my dates off a little bit, think that he was 37 is because they think that that's what, why Sarah died when they got back and told her what actually happened and she died. Well, I don't. The Bible doesn't say that any place. So I don't think that's what happened. But he, it looks as though he told no one what was going on. Not his two young men, not his wife, not his son. No one. Can you imagine carrying a burden like that totally by yourself? Share it with no one? And some of you probably have some things that Maybe you do carry that. You've told no one. And that's what he was doing. He didn't tell anyone. Just that we can tell. And they take off, and they're walking. And it's interesting that it says on the third day, on the third day he lifted up his eyes. And I don't know if the term lift up his eyes is significant or not. But had he been walking along pretty much with his head down, and for three days was he thinking, maybe, just maybe, God, somewhere in this journey, is going to say, Abraham, no. You can turn around and go back. <clears throat> three days into it, this was a long walk. They had taken provisions along. They probably stopped and ate. I don't know what their conversation was. I'm sure they didn't walk along and say nothing for three days. I don't know what the conversation was. But I doubt Abraham was real chatty. And I don't know what he thought when he lifted up his eyes and saw the mountain in the area. Was he thinking, oh, we walked a little too fast. Wish we could maybe take a different route. But there it was. He saw it ahead saw where he was going. And so he stops there, and he, and incidentally, if you're looking for some types, think about the fact that we have a three-day journey to the sacrifice. Jesus, on the other hand, spent three days in the tomb after the sacrifice to go be with his father. Here it's three days of a journey, in a sense, that he thought he was going to, Abraham, give up his son. But they journeyed there for three days, and he looks up, and he sees the mountain. And he tells these young men, he says, I want you just to stay here. And, and my son and I are going to go on ahead. But it's interesting how he says it in verse 5. 
He says, I and the lad will go and worship and come again to you. Is that the faith that he's saying, hey, we're going to go and worship, and I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I believe God's going to raise my son from the dead or something. We're coming back. Because he says, I and the lad will go, and we will return. We're going to worship while we're there. I don't know if I would have been in the, in the mindset of worship, but Abraham was. He said, we're going to go and we're going to worship. That should tell us a little bit about what true worship is. I doubt that Abraham was planning to go there and be all excited and joyous and all of this, but he was going there to do what God had asked him to do and offer a sacrifice, however painful it was, and that was worship, and that is worship. So it says that Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, in verse 6, and laid it upon Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand, and off they went. Do you think about of another son that the wood for the offering, in a sense, or the wood was laid upon him? Jesus took the cross and carried it. And I think that's an example of what's going on here. Jesus took the very instrument that would be used to kill him and took it to the very same mountain, and we'll look at that a little bit later, that Isaac carried the wood that was going to be used to burn his body to that very same mountain. And off they go. And at this point, Isaac says something to his father that I wonder if Abraham was hoping wouldn't be asked. But he says, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, we have the fire. You're carrying that, and I've got the wood. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And I suppose that his answer was probably fairly ready. Because I have a feeling for about three days now, Abraham's been thinking, sometime this boy is going to ask me, where's the lamb? We don't have a lamb. I didn't bring anything along to sacrifice. He's going to ask me, what am I going to tell him? What am I going to tell him? And so he had an answer. He said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. He's not going to provide one for me. He's going to provide one himself. And so they went, both of them, together. If you look down at verse 18, and we'll get there later, well, not verse 18, verse 14. He called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh, which is God sees and God provides, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. So they go on together, and they get there, and it says, And Abraham built an altar there. 
Now, not only did they go there, but when they get there, they look around, and, and there are plenty of stones in that part of the world. And at some point, he has to build an altar. He takes his, by the sweat of his own hands, and I don't know if Isaac helped, but they built an altar there, and they laid everything up, and they got everything ready, and, and put the stones in place, and, and, and someone said that, you know, the stones were probably kept in place by the tears and the sweat of Abraham, that he built this altar, and he gets it all done, and he lays the wood on it, and then he binds his son and lays him on the altar. I don't know, the Bible doesn't say, I don't know what explanations Abraham gave Isaac. At some point in that process, did he explain to Isaac what was happening and why he was doing it? Abraham's over 100 years old. Isaac's old enough to carry the wood up a mountain. He probably could have said, "Uh, Dad, I don't think I'm going along with this project. I'm out of here. He could have outrun him. He could have taken the ropes or whatever they used to bind him. And I'm not sure where those ropes were, by the way. Perhaps where they were the very ropes that bound and kept the wood together. But he could have refused. But there's nothing in the story, nothing in the Word of God that would say he resisted. He bound his son and he laid him on the altar. And I I wondered, as I thought about after he had asked, where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? As they walked along, did he put his hand on Isaac's shoulder and say things like, you know, I don't understand everything, but it's going to be okay, or it's going to work out, or something? I I don't know. And so he puts him on the altar, and Abraham stretched forth his hand, he took the knife, and he was going to slay his son. The angel of the Lord called and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. Now, if you look at the very first verse of this chapter, it says, Abraham, God said to Abraham, and he said, behold, here I am. Abraham had become used to hearing God's voice. And it's a good thing he had. Because had he not been able to discern God's voice here, it would have been too late. And again he said, here I am, or here am I. And he said, lay not thine hand upon thy lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. I'm not sure, I can't quite imagine the joy that was felt there. Um, I've never been asked to sacrifice one of my children. I don't think I will, because we're not under that covenant anymore. We're not in that time era. God would not ask us to literally take a knife and slay one of our children. If you ever think God is telling you something like that, I don't care what hour it is, please call me and I will tell you, You are hearing things you ought not to hear, and we'll have a discussion. 
the only, I was thinking about the, the joy that must have been when, when this happened. And we're, we'll get to the lamb caught in a thicket here in a moment. But I, I thought about when, when suddenly he realized that he was not going to have to slay his son. And his son realized he's not going to go through this. The joy that they must have felt. And just, I suppose there were some hugs and there were some praises and there was some shouting perhaps. I don't know what all might have happened. At least in their heart there was joy, I'm sure. The only, the only thing I thought about is a, is a time that I, I don't think I'll ever quite forget the joy of, of it. And some of you have been through experiences where you've lost a child or a child's been hurt or something. But I thought about a time when uh, Jessica was quite young. I don't remember how old. Uh, we still lived on County Road 46 at that time. It's been a while ago. But she was pretty little. But she could walk. And Cindy had went, I think it was to a shower or something here at church. I don't remember exactly. And we were adding on to that house. We had added a, gar- added a garage on. And in the garage between the center trusses, I had it built so there would be room up there for some storage. and had some plywood laying up there, but at the edge of those, uh, we had insulated, we had put insulation up there, hadn't put the drywall up yet, but there was insulation, and we had the wiring, and of course, the top side of the insulation is all pink and fuzzy, you know, and looks so pretty, and so there was a stairs that went up, we had put one of those folding stairs up the the thing, and so I was going to go up there and work a little bit that evening. And Jessica was going to go up with me, help me. And so we went up, and I carried her up and kind of set her at the top of the, on, the, on the plywood. And I started on up, and she walked across the plywood right away and saw the pink fuzzy stuff and stepped out on it to see what it was. And I knew that kind of, we had a nine-foot ceiling in that garage, and I was cement below, and there's some trash sitting down there from cleaning up when they're working. And I knew she's going down, and I had no idea what the, what the fall was going to be like. And I started back down the stairs, and suddenly I realized that as she fell through it, the wiring, the Romex, had caught her under her arms. And so I'm trying to shift gears and go the other way, about as fast as I had shifted that way, and managed to get up there, because I'm thinking she's going to let go, and caught her, and got her up on the on the uh, plywood, and we hugged, and I think I cried a while because of the joy that she didn't get hurt. I thought, I thought it was going to be a mess. I wasn't ready to sacrifice my son. I hadn't had three days to think about it, or four, whatever it was by this time. I cannot imagine the joy that was in Abraham's heart. But there should be a sense of that in each one of us when we recognize the fact that God the Father did not withhold, if you will, the knife from his own son. But we needed it, every one of us. There's not a one of us that didn't need for Jesus to go through with what he did. And for God the Father, in this case, Abraham was willing to go through with it, but he was told, no, you don't have to. But when the Father sent his son to the cross, and his son went willingly, just like Isaac went on the altar, 
The father didn't say, no, I can't go through with it. Or there was no one to cry out to God the Father and say, no, no, no. I think Satan probably was tempting him that way. Or maybe Satan thought this would end everything. Instead, at some point in that, and I believe that's much of a reference to Psalm 22 as anything else, but the son cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When we get to verse 12, or verse 13, and it says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And it's at that point that Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And God provided. Turn back a few pages in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, and this is part of the curse and part of God telling Adam and Eve what they would go through and what was happening because of the fall. In verse 17 it says, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast, hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast, not, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for thy sake, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat thy bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. This lamb, or this ram, was caught... In a thicket. Thickets are made out of briars, brambles, the stuff that grows because of the curse. And so this ram was caught, in a sense, by the curse itself. If you look back in Genesis chapter 3, you can see in verse 15 the promise of a, of a, redeem, of a, yes, of a redeemer someday. Job, being one of the oldest uh, stories, I believe, in the Bible, one of the oldest things that happened after the flood, Job himself said, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, a Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand on the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms or my decay destroys this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. The very fact that they understood there was a Redeemer coming. This had been promised. And now we see it coming to uh, fulfillment in a sense of a type being shown to Abraham. The curse is the cause of death. In 1 Corinthians 15 it talks about the fact that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death. 
death came upon all men, according to Romans, because of what happened in the fall. Now, when this ram was caught in by its head in a thicket, I, I think there's a direct correlation in the picture here of what Jesus Christ took with him. Remember that they put a crown of thorns on his head and beat it upon his head with a rod so that the blood ran down. I don't believe that was just something that just happened. I believe it is, shows that Jesus Christ himself took the very curse, if you will, with him to the cross to show that he has power over everything that was part of that curse to destroy it, including death. This ram is caught by his head in a thicket. Jesus Christ took thorns upon his head to show us how much he loved him and the fact that he has power and triumph over the curse. I want to talk a little bit here about substitutionary atonement. Some years ago, Jerry preached a message on the Lamb as it shows different, as it progresses through the Bible. I want to talk a little bit about that. I think I've maybe preached on that as well. I've heard others share it. It's, a, it's good for us to, to see this. <clears throat> there is somewhat of a, you might not be aware of this, there's somewhat of a, a battle, an argument, a discussion, something going on within conservative Anabaptism right now regarding if Christ's death was substitutionary. And some would say it was not, and some would say it is. And there's extremes on both sides of that, and that's the problem with it. And, if, and I believe in substitutionary atonement. Well, I want to explain one aspect about it, and this is where I think people go off the one edge, and then people say, well, it was not substitutionary, and so forth. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, maybe you've said it yourself, maybe it's in a song, that Christ took my place on Calvary. Now you're thinking, where is he going with this? Well, he did, didn't he? In the sense that he bore our sins there, and because of our sins, he went there, and, because, and it says that God laid upon him the iniquity of us all, Yes, but this is the thing you want to be careful of. He did not take your place in the sense that you could have went to Calvary and you could have been nailed to a cross and you could have suffered and you could have died and it wouldn't have availed you anything outside of the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other person that could go to Calvary. So in a sense, he didn't take anyone's place there in a sense that their sacrifice would have atoned for sin. But he did take my sin there, and had he not went there, I would deserve to go there and die. But I could still be nailed to a cross on Mount Moriah today and die, and that alone wouldn't save me. It's the death of Jesus Christ because he was the perfect Lamb of God. And so it's substitutionary in the fact that he took upon himself the sins of the whole world, and we're going to look at that. And he died instead of all of us being eternally damned to hell forever, which is eternal death. In this particular case, you see a lamb 
being sacrificed for an individual, for Isaac. The lamb is sacrificed for Isaac. Isaac's life was saved because God said no. They still had a sacrifice because there was one ram caught in a thicket for one person. Turn over in your Bibles to Exodus, a few pages over, to Exodus chapter 12. And this is the story of the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, starting at verse 12, he says, For I, this is God speaking himself, by the way, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt will I execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token, for a sign upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. We move from the lamb being slain for an individual to a lamb being slain for a family. It didn't do any good for the neighbor if they didn't have their own blood on their door. It was this family had to have the blood on the doorpost for this family. Now, if you move on over into Leviticus, then you begin to see a lamb slain for a nation, if you will. There was the scapegoat, and there were the sacrifices. And yes, people brought individual sacrifices, but now it moves from being for an individual, for a family, to a nation. And then if you move on to Isaiah, and I'd like if you would turn there with me, Isaiah chapter 53, and I really don't know where to stop and start in this chapter, so I'm just going to read it, and you look at all the connections, the, the things that connect to Jesus Christ in this passage. Isaiah 53, who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground, and hath no former comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows. Now notice we're saying now a man. It's changed from a lamb to a man. And it's that way the rest of the way through. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Now notice here the substitutionary part. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. If all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before the shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generations? He was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people was he stricken. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin... 
He shall see his seed, it shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And in John, we see in John 1, when John the Baptist was baptizing, and he pointed out Jesus, he said, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And so we go back to Isaac, and we see a lamb for a person. And then in Exodus, it's for a family. In Leviticus, it's for a nation. And then Jesus comes, and it says, Behold, the Lamb of God, that taketh away the sin of the world. There's something else I want us to know in this, notice in this story as we think about how this connects and shows us uh, what Jesus Christ was going to do for us. God told Abraham to go to the land of Moriah, and he said, I'm going to show you a mountain there. And that's where he went to sacrifice Isaac. And then they sacrificed that lamb, and they went back to Beersheba. But if you look at 2 Samuel 24, and we're not going to take the time to look there right now, but if you go to 2 Samuel 24, you'll see that when David had numbered the people, and God was angry, and God gave him some choices, and it ended up being a plague, and thousands of people were dying. They had a regular pandemic, apparently. Thousands of people were dying, and they needed something to stop the plague. And we can compare this, in a sense, to the plague of sin, of disobedience and sin. But David built there, it says, an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was um, entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. Where did he build that? Well, it was Arana's threshing floor. That David went and bought that threshing floor. And he wanted to give it to him. He said, no, I'm going to buy it. And he bought the oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing tools for the wood to burn on a thing, and he had it built and did that. His son built a temple there. Some years later, Herod built a temple there. Some years later, we see the Dome of the Rock there. And in that process, on that mountain, Jesus Christ died on a cross. You see that? God looked way out ahead and said, there's where my son will be sacrificed. I don't know this for certain, but I often thought the way God works, the very spot that Abraham built that altar and laid his son on it, I tend to believe is a spot where the cross was in the ground. I could be wrong. It was on the same mountain, we know that. It was on the same mountain. God does things in His way, in His order. I want to look a little again at that Jehovah Jireh. So, He says, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. God sees and God provides. Unfortunately, today, that term and that idea has been hijacked by prosperity gospel teachers to say that, well, God sees and God will provide anything for you. Just tell God what you want, and God's going to provide it. doesn't matter what it is. 
You can have it. Jehovah Jireh. God sees and God provides. And that's something we need to to claim as a promise in this sense, that God sees and sometimes he sees things we don't. Actually, all the time he sees things we don't. And he provides for us what we need, not necessarily what we want. But the greatest need we have ever had, humanity has ever had, was a way to be redeemed back to the Father. And that is what God has provided. In that very place, he sent his son and took his hands off and allowed men, people, to terribly mistreat him, to abuse him, to scoff at him, to forsake him, to reject him, and to be killed. Abraham, as a father, was the one that was there, that did the binding, took the knife, and all of that. Not with God's son. He left it up to sinful people. In verse 15, it says, An angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, For because thou hast done this thing, and thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed. Now this promise has been given before. And the stars of heaven, and as the sand of the sea which are upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. The sentence doesn't end there. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Because of Abraham's obedience, God said, I am going to multiply thy seed. There are going to be many nations. But there's something interesting about this promise. He said, And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And I don't think he's totally talking here necessarily about his, about the nations that came. Because there were times in disobedience when they didn't possess the gates of the enemies. But the Bible does say that upon this rock, upon Jesus Christ, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus Christ will prevail against the gates of his enemies. Everything that the enemy brings upon us, Jesus Christ is there to help us. God sees, God provides. Everything that he has ever tried to bring against the Son, Jesus Christ was victorious over it. That is why we can place our faith in Jesus Christ. And that promise has continued. If you look back a little farther, you can see where Isaac says the same thing about through his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There is not a nation upon earth that has not been blessed because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. There's not a nation that hasn't been blessed. There are many places that haven't heard. The scripture talks about the fact that every, every land will hear, every place will hear. 
But I believe the world has been blessed beyond what we could ever imagine and what Abraham could ever imagine. Abraham obeyed God. Abraham had faith. It was counted unto him for righteousness. God has asked us, not only, he's not just asked us, he's told us, if we want to please God and be righteous in God's eyes, then we place our faith in the one that God provided. And that was Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for being a God who did not turn his back upon humanity when we failed. God, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all need your salvation. And thank you, Lord, that you provided that through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for men like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the others in the scripture that we can look at. They were not perfect, but God, they obeyed you. And Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that Abraham was willing to do that and that you fulfill your promises to him. And we've been so blessed to have Jesus Christ as our Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.